I'm Amy Halpern Lab. And I'm John Moscow. Welcome to Ethical Schools. We're doing something a bit different today. We're posting an episode from a correctionpodcast.com in which Lev Moscow interviews Dr. Walter Mignolo, Distinguished Professor of Romance Studies and Director of the Center for Global Studies and the Humanities at Duke University. Dr. Mignolo's research and teaching have been devoted to understanding the historical foundation of the modern and colonial world system since 1500, essentially the development of Western civilization and its expansion around the globe. Dr. Mignolo's approach has profound implications for teaching in high school and college and for the ethical implications of how we think about modernity. Good, good morning. Let me introduce you. We're here with Walter Mignolo, who is a professor at Duke and director of the Center for Global Studies and Humanities at Duke University. He's the author of many books, one of which, uh, The Idea of Latin America, I am in the middle of right now. And today we're going to talk about decoloniality. So the first question I have is, can you clear up what the difference is between decolonization and decoloniality? Well, yes, thank you for the invitation. Thank, and thank you. you for uh, uh, for the question. So briefly, decolonization is a word that was very much used during the Cold War. During the Cold War was, the Cold War, as we know, was kind of liberal capitalism against a state communism. And Decolonization at that time were, were the kind of the politics of the people who had been colonized by either the West or the Soviet. Decolonization at that time meant to send the settler home to get rid of the kind of um, influence, not that influence, but also the dictation from the imperial countries and form our own nation states. And that happened. A lot of nation states were formed in Asia and Africa during the time. But that failed. I mean, it was successful because they managed to form the nation states, but was a failure because the nation state remained in the hands of a native elite or indigenous elite. Mm. And we see, mm. and we have been seeing the kind of the consequences uh, of that. So with the collapse of the Soviet Union at the moment of the collapse of the Soviet Union was already clear for many people that decolonization in that way, that decolonization cannot be done through the state or by, by former states. So at that time, decoloniality emerged, re-emerged as a kind of reworking of the idea of decolonization during the Cold War. So since the 90s, Decoloniality become the project of we are calling today epistemic anesthetic reconstitution. It's a little bit <laughs> jargon, but it means that the failure of the failure of decolonization is that they didn't question the knowledge upon which the West and the Soviet Union operated. So, because the Soviet Union was kind of operating in a kind of the Western frame of mind. I mean, communism is a Western uh, invention, right? Mm -hmm. So, 
And that meant epistemic reconstitution is if we have to get rid, we have to delink from that kind of presupposition that founded Western knowledge, and in this case, political economy and political theory. And secondly, we cannot just do that rationally. That implies a kind of change in our sensibility, in our sensing, and that is the aesthetics, right? So epistemic Epistemic and uh, aesthetic reconstitution means, and this is we are working on, uh, is that we have to start kind of thinking from other principles and assumptions, but at the same time, that involves the way we feel, the way we sense, the way we are in the world, briefly, our praxis of living. So that is the, the, the what is decoloniality today in the kind of school I am working. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So I teach a 10th grade class, which roughly starts with the Enlightenment. So it's a class about modernity. What is the relationship between coloniality and and the Enlightenment, if there, if any? Oh, well, so that will help to kind of uh, understand my previous answer to your previous question. <laughs> For us, modernity is not a question of enlightenment. The enlightenment is already too late. I mean, mm. the foundation of modernity is the Renaissance, the European Renaissance. Mm. Without two and a half centuries of Atlantic slave trade, of all the economy from the, from the New World, the enlightenment would not have been possible as it was at that given time. Right. Mm -hmm. So for us, modernity is related to the Renaissance and the word modern already appears in several thinkers of the Renaissance. But the northern thinkers think that the Enlightenment is the center. But we we are from the south. Mm -hmm. For us, the center is the Renaissance is not the, the, the Enlightenment. So modernity, modernity is not just a, a historical moment is the narrative of historical moment by people who can tell the narrative of modernity. But by telling the story of modernity, they hide coloniality. Mm -hmm. Meaning that modernity is a bunch of narrative, including science, philosophy, political philosophy, political economy, of salvation. Salvation by conversion, salvation by progress, salvation by civilization, salvation by development, salvation by spreading democracy. But the other half, the, the hidden side, is coloniality. In order to do all that, somebody has to pay the consequences. Yeah. And that is what the narrative of modernity hides. And you can, what I'm saying now, you can see it Right now, it's not a question of the 16th century. Yeah. You can see what happened with China, what happened with the Middle East, uh, what happened with Russia, what happened with the kind of growing inequality, with the kind of chanting the beauty of globalization. So modernity is a narrative that justifies, legitimizes, and hides coloniality. And so when, I, when we're talking about epistemic anesthesia, Reconstitution. He said, "Well, we have to kind of show how this work, and is not to the benefit of of, uh, of all, and we have to think. We, we have to create a new way of thinking and new way of being, because, as Einstein say, the problems 
cannot be solved in the same frame of mind that created the problem. Mm -hmm. So this is what we're talking about, the linking about epistemic reconstitution, because whoever controls knowledge controls subjectivity. And you can see that in, in how the mass media operates. Seems like the fascist and the traditional Marxist narrative and the liberal narrative all promise this salvation. And yeah. and so actually so those all those narratives are, are wrong and we've got to unlearn those narratives. What is the story that you would encourage high school teachers to tell if not the story that hey at the end of the road we're gonna have some kind of paradise here on earth if we just follow these programs, whether it's the programs of the IMF or the program of Marx and Engels? Well, I don't use textbooks. So the question you ask, I am I am having that experience every year with undergraduates. Mm -hmm. I teach a course for undergraduates that uh, I was asked, uh, asked to teach, which is Aztec, Maya Aztecs and Incas, the uh, indigenous cosmology of Latin America. So I do something different. I mean, I introduce the students to the, those cosmologies, but I focus mainly to what does cosmology means today for the reemergence of indigenous political activism. So I don't use textbooks, I use newspapers, I use a lot of videos, a lot of interviews, and I say to the, to the student, in this course, I don't use a scholarly work, anthropological or ethnographic or historical, because I, I want you not to know what the anthropologists or historians know and what they say about the indigenous people. I want to know you to know how indigenous people think. So I expose them directly to feminists, to races, to the indigenous cosmology through, and today we have a lot of material. Uh, there's a lot of powerful uh, indigenous intellectuals who who write, they, are, they do interviews uh, in uh, YouTube, etc., etc. And the result is fantastic, mm -hmm. because the students began to say, why nobody told me that in high school? Now I begin to say all the things that I was not exposed to. They learn to think about that, not just to kind of get more information, but as, uh, as you said a moment ago, we have to unlearn in order to relearn. So learning to unlearn, and you cannot do that with, with textbook. You cannot do that with the scholarly work. You have to, you can, I do that with also with uh, Afro-Caribbean thinker, with feminist thinker. You cannot, you cannot expose students to feminists in Latin America from some anthropologists in North America. You have to hear and to read what the feminists in Latin America said, Afro-feminists, indigenous feminists, white feminists, LGTB, etc. So you have to listen to people who think by themselves. So that is part of reconstitute epistemological mm -hmm. aesthetic constitution, right? To kind of pay attention and listen to people who have been destituted from thinking. And that is the problem of the hegemony of Western knowledge, which Western knowledge is okay, but the aberration is the pretense of universality. 
So that is the task of decoloniality today. I'm reading your book, thinking about the of the idea of Latin America and the, the even the, the language you use when we're talking about Latin America. And now I'm kind of a mess mentally because I'm I'm about to start teaching an independent studies class next semester with a couple of 11th graders, and I'm not even sure if it makes sense to talk about Latin America as such. I don't want to just sum up the argument of the book, but like, what would you say to teachers when we're even when we're talking about the language that we use with kids? How should we talk about this region which was invented by by colonizers. Right. right. So that's, I, I wrote the book precisely for that, uh, for, for that reason. And that is a part, you see, that is an example of epistemic and uh, aesthetic reconstitution. The basic point here, the basic decolonial kind of a starting point, and that's where decoloniality dif- uh, is different from decolonization, because decolonization didn't answer the question I am going to ask they kind of ask questions that are already framed by modernity. Mm-hmm. So the question mm-hmm. is never trying to define what it is. Trying to understand how what it is came to be what it is. Okay. So the question is, is not an entity, Latin America, that was fabricated. So how was fabricated? By whom? to the interest of whom, why, at what moment, what time. So that is a fundamental fundamental principle of epistemic aesthetic reconstitution, because once you start thinking in that way, you change the way you feel and you approach uh, these kind of things. Eh? So you can do it also in relation to gender or in relation to race. I mean, there is no ontological, there is no race in reality. There is no gender in reality. Those are kind of classification by people who control knowledge. So you have to say, well, this classification, who invented them? When came into being? For what reason? To benefit of what? To benefit of whom? So that is, that is the, the, the way we approach. I mean, it was no America. Columbus didn't discover America because there was no America to be discovered. So he landed in, a, in Anahuac, in the uh, Caribbean, and, I mean, in, uh, in uh, Tahuantinsuyo, in Abiyala, in uh, Turtle Island, but there was no America. Mm-hmm. But once you put the name America, you appropriate that and you incorporate it into your knowledge. And if you control knowledge, you control subjectivity. So then people began to kind of accept that they live in America. So there you go. We say epistemic anesthetic reconstitution is a kind of jargon, a kind of technological concept. But I am giving you a specific example of how this kind of works. When you question the assumption upon which knowledge is built, and when you began to do that, you began to delink from the from Western uh, assumption, and you began to feel differently. And you transmit that to the student. I mean, you transmit that to the student because you become a different person. Yeah. You approach you approach the issue and you approach the students differently. I mean, you don't want to teach them; you want them to learn. That's when I go to the students. In this seminar, I'm not teaching; you are learning, <laughs> and that's true. <laughs> right? So you throw the material there, you throw this kind of principle, those kind of guide, you don't tell them what they have to think. 
you just give the elements for them to think from themselves, to face the kind of, to face themselves and to, to face what they have learned. And now what they do when they began to, to be confronted with material, that kind of uh, question what they were taking for granted. Mm-hmm. So that's more my philosophy in uh, undergraduate student. I love to teach undergraduate <laughs> classes. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine it's a lot of fun. Um, I, I mean, I have a lot of fun teaching high school kids for probably some of the same reasons. Maybe you could talk about some places to start. So some books that we could, that teachers could read that then we could then pass on to not, and not textbooks, but some of the some of the books, or or you okay, said you're, got, you're giving kids interviews. What kind of interviews, and who are you having them listen to? Well, I can uh, I can send you some. Uh, well, a lot of things in this case are, are in Spanish because the undergraduate teach in Spanish. Okay. But I give you I give you one book in English that I always start this seminar, which is about Maya Incas and Aztec, but I. Uh, I start with the brilliant thinker Nishanabeh from Canada, and the student began to be disoriented because they said, "Why do we, why don't we start reading a First Nation, Indigenous people person, and not?" Uh, so, if you if you work with uh, dancing in our turtles back, by Leanne Simpson. And what is fundamental in that book, you will understand what I mean by epistemic anesthetic reconstitution. Because she works through Nishanabeh concept, confronting the limit of Western vocabulary of knowledge. Mm-hmm. So that is why I start from, from that book. From day one, or the first week, a student began to shift the way they thought about indigenous people, but also the way they thought about themselves because their own way of thinking began to be questioned, not just because it's it's critical, but because they began to see a different way of thinking, a different way of kind of, a different kind of concept, different kind of assumption, and different different way of being in the world. It's not just thinking, it's not just rational, abstract. It's no, it's the memory, it's the body that kind of articulates the reason. And, and I can I can send you a couple of uh, interviews and videos in English. In this case, for indigenous people, that uh, you you can do it with other. I mean, you can do it with Chinese and with Arabs and uh, with Afro uh, Afro Caribbean. You can do it with LGTB, etc. No? So yeah, I would appreciate that. Yeah, I would appreciate it if you could send me that and. And perhaps I can also put that up on our website for other students and teachers to, to be able to access. That would be that would be great. Okay, I can send you a couple of uh, a, a couple of things, including a reference to this book, but also some kind of interview or, or talks with uh, Leanne Simpson. That would be great. So I, use, I use a lot of a lot of videos, uh, but as, as I said before. Ninety-five uh, percent of the material in the course is uh, is in Spanish, but uh, there there are quite a bit in English too. So okay, yeah, well, I would send you that. Yeah, well, I appreciate okay. that. You know, so um, the last question is, you know, I, for me when I was eighteen or nineteen, I I came across 
Noam Chomsky, and he was pretty transformative for me. And then a couple of years later, somebody gave me Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo Freire. And that changed not only the way that I saw the world, but also as you were talking about the way I felt inside. And both those books were really important. Mm -hmm. Right. Is there is there a book for you that when you were 19 or 20 years old that you found that was transformative in that way? Absolutely. I always say that uh, I am doing what I am doing now Mm. because uh, when I was 15 or so, 14, 16, I read The Myth of Sisyphus, Camus and and the Foreigner, Camus. So Camus transformed my life and then reading Camus sent me to Kafka. Mm-hmm. And when I read the castle and I read the metamorphosis, that that's it. I mean <laughs> that, that those are <laughs> those are my foundation. So everything that kind of uh, that orient my you see my sensing and that's what we, we call a thesis. It's not just the reason the rational aspect, it's how those texts touch my feeling, my my belief, my sensing, my uh, emotioning. And then you transform that into rational arguments. Mm-hmm. But what is important is what you feel, what you sense. So those that those are my foundation, Camus and Kafka. <laughs> you, you, you can say, well, that is very different from the colonial, but no, you know why? Why? <laughs> because... Because, I mean, when I became more and more into decoloniality, I, I, I said, why, why I was interested in Camus? Because Camus is a PNR, is an Algeria in yeah. Paris. So he was kind of dealing with similar problems I was dealing when I went to Paris. And Kafka was a Jew mm. in Czechoslovakia. So there are two marginal people. Right? Yeah. Well, I think you'd, uh, I think you'd like my dad a lot. You know, he I have um, a gift from him from just a couple of Hanukkahs ago sitting, you know, right here by my side. It's a uh, it's Camus myth of Sisyphus. And, um, you know, for my dad, I think it's the it's the philosophy of his life, which is, OK, we're probably not going to get this boulder ever up. The, it won't ever stay there, but uh, we have to kind of think that it will. Otherwise, you know. You might as well just, you know, end it now. So that's yeah. that. I think that kind of motivates him, and that's been a very important book for him. So I'm I'm excited to hear you say that too, because yeah, it's what my dad talks about all the time. Uh, about what? Camille and the myth of Sisyphus. The myth of Sisyphus. Yeah, yeah. And and he gave me that yeah. book a long time ago. Yeah, it's very important for him and and for me as well. So that's exciting to hear you say that. No, but this, I mean, what what age is your father? Um, he was born in '48, so, so I guess you know. Oh yeah, we're, we're more or less the same generation. So it's very interesting how Camus kind of affected so many people of that generation. Huh? So was was your father in? Because one of the things that kind of impacted me in Camus is mm-hmm. that I understood later on why is that I was an I was immigrant. I mean, my, all my family come from Italy. So I, I always felt that kind of uh, the, the feeling of not belonging to the country, mm. and then I began to realize that that Camille was in the in the same situation. I mean, he was an Algerian in Paris. Yeah, and there was a lot of that at that uh, at that time because, yeah. especially in my case, uh, there was a lot of uh, immigration on the other direction. I mean, Latin America going to Europe, to Spanish, to Spain, and. And there was uh, Mustaki singing Limitek, <laughs> which is kind of the, the stranger, right? Mm. So there was 
something there in in certain sector that kind of affected the kind of the sensibility of migration. So for me, it was that I don't know for for your dad. Your dad might, might be uh, have different reason. But it's amazing how Camille impacted uh, so many people. I, I found still uh, students. I mean, graduate students who are thirty. Yeah, they they read Camille L'Etranger, you know the myth. But I mean, it's, they remember reading it and they remember it. But the effect that it had on and me or your father, not necessarily is the effect that um, everybody will kind of sense reading reading Camille. Yeah. But anyhow. For me, Camus and Kafka were the kind of identify with them. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much, Walter, and, and appreciate you giving me all this time today. And it's, a, I don't know what it's like in North Carolina right now, but it's a lovely Sunday. So let me let you go. Enjoy your Sunday. And thank you, listeners. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend or colleague. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating or review. This helps others to find the show. Check out our website, ethicalschools.org, for more episodes and articles and to subscribe to our monthly emails. We post annotated transcripts of our interviews to make them easy to use in workshops or classes. We work with consultants to offer customized SEL programs with a focus on ethics for schools and youth programs in the New York City and San Francisco Bay areas. Contact us at hosts at ethicalschools.org. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ethical Schools. Our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denchi. Until next week.